0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Ward and Lisa Poleski. <laughs> Here Scott
2: Thompson.
0: Yeah. Complete with edits. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Lots to talk about today. Uh, worldwide, I guess the big uh, news is it looks like uh, a pause is going to ha- happen midnight our time uh, in the Hamas-Israeli War. Four days uh, of uh, of a pause to... Um, you know, <laughs> to try to help, I guess. Uh, and that is where that sits at this point. Also, um, a confirmation uh, late yesterday afternoon, I guess around four o'clock from the, uh, from the New York State governor, uh, that in fact the situation that had closed down the Rainbow Bridge and all of the uh, bridges heading into New York State in the Niagara area uh, from about, uh, I guess, the 11 o'clock hour on, it was shortly after 11, uh, that a car just, and, and I'm sure you've seen the footage of this, It's uh, it's just absolutely bizarre, Uh, you know, and of course, I'm, you know, only a matter of time before security footage came out of it. Uh, But a car seemingly racing towards um, uh, the border crossing, which. You know, I guess you know they try to keep it open to accommodate so many cars at so much time, but obviously this car was uh it was it was traveling at a at a tremendous rate of speed and it hits an embankment and then just literally launches skyward and uh it, It's amazing um uh, that no other people were hurt in this other than the two occupants of the car as the as the car kind of barrel rolls. And, um, as it's flying through the air and then lands and, and explodes and such. So, uh, and obviously for the first, uh, few hours, unaware what was going on. That's the reason they closed down the borders. Uh, You know, until the announcement came out uh, later in the afternoon at about four o'clock with the governor of New York saying that it was an isolated incident and nothing to do uh, with terrorism. But prior to that, it certainly was being investigated under the lens of uh, of terrorism, which is why they closed all four borders and uh, and you know the the as we talked yesterday the very fluid story constantly changing about where the car originated and what had happened and and you know all kinds of news reports uh, again and, you know everybody saying fluid story none of this is confirmed and then finally at four o'clock in the afternoon the uh, the governor of New York came uh, with the information that it was an isolated incident it was short out op- shortly after that that the other three borders uh, then did open up obviously with the rainbow B- uh, bridge remaining closed you know for the purpose of the investigation and such and to find out exactly what did happen uh in all of this but uh terrifying afternoon yesterday and uh um, and, and, you know, thank goodness it was treated like a terrorist situation until we knew for sure, because, uh, again, um, it's not very often that cars go uh, streaming through the air at uh, at a very high rate of speed and splash and 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 burst into flame, so to speak. So, you know, at least we've learned something from the what is going on in the world and uh and police and law enforcement on both sides of the border taking precautions and closing all four borders until we knew uh what was going on. Uh but until then lots of speculation and uh (laughs) And it's being used politically today. But at the end of the day, uh, again, uh, I think one would be uh, silly not to investigate any of this through uh, the highest alert of lens, whether you want to label that as terrorist or whatever, uh, which is why they in fact closed three borders uh, over and above the one at the Rainbow Bridge. All right, uh, good news in that respect, and uh, of course our condolences to the family of uh, of the people who lost lives, and, and, and who knows uh, what that story is. Hopefully that will come out uh, in later days, months, whatever. All right, another jam-packed show coming up, and I hope you hang around for it. Uh, lots going on. First of all, we're going to talk uh, uh, to Marvin Ryder, a professor at the Group School of Business McMaster University, in regard to the Stellantis deal. We remember talking a lot about, you know, a lot of money being poured into uh, plants and, and such infrastructure for the next generation of electric vehicle and such and, and how this was going to bring jobs to Ontario's manufacturing centre. Now there's some concern as to where those jobs are coming from, here or South Korea. We'll talk about that, try to clarify that situation as well. Uh, Also going to talk about the violence that we're seeing in uh, the divisiveness, whether it is um uh protests in major cities it's going on in our schools as well we'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh as we try to decipher between freedom and authoritarianism democracy uh versus terror i don't know it doesn't seem to be a hard question for me but uh, it's a debate going on uh, across the country. And the U.S. reaction. We'll talk to Brian J. Karam of what happened at the Rainbow Bridge. Although, uh, you know, again, not much to tell at this story. But uh, big news of the day, the big guest of the day, uh, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. Always into talking to us, and I love that about him, even though, you know, we're, we disagree on some situations when it comes to politics. But uh, Jugmeet Singh is going to be joining us after, uh, the four, after the break at 420. So if you uh, have a question for Jugmeet Singh, you'd like me to pass along pass it to me now uh, send me a note Scott Thompson at 900 chmlcom and we'll see if we can squeak it in uh, we've heard a lot uh, especially over the last uh, year or two in regard to deals uh, between the provincial federal government and EV manufacturers or uh, or such those connected to electrical vehicle uh, electric vehicle uh, industries in some way uh, that are uh, encouraged to and in, in and and of course uh paid and and given handsome uh reasons to to come to canada and provide work for uh canadians and specifically here in ontario and uh it's interesting that over the last little while we've heard a lot about the stalantis deal and uh the jobs that would be coming as a result of that and now an added wrinkle in the story is something about south korean workers being brought in for some of the jobs is this a case of uh somebody of qualification that needs to help set something up, or is this taking away from uh, those jobs that uh, were thought to be those of Ontarians? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
3: I am glad to be with you.
0: Marvin, what's going on here? Why the confusion?
3: <laughs> well, so the, here's the way I understand the story, Scott. I wasn't a firsthand witness to this, but last week, the, Ambassador from South Korea to Canada was visiting uh, Windsor as part of a public relations exercise, checking on the progress of the plant, what have you. And he met with the chief of police, um, impressed by the chief of police and all of his workforce. And this is what the police chief said after he met with the the ambassador Uh, pleased to meet with the ambassador and pleased to welcome 1,600 South Korean workers to the plant next year, and suddenly all all hell breaks loose. Now, I don't think either gentleman is exactly in the position to comment on the factory. The the ambassador is not the one staffing the factory and the police chief is not the one hiring. uh, And he may very well have misheard, as you might sometimes when it's not the primary activity. There is no doubt that this new factory, which uses South Korean technology, is going to have to have some South Korean workers there to install the technology, install the various machines, train the Canadian workers. The current plant manager, who uh, uh, I trust him a lot, has said the plan is still to hire 2,500 local people, and they will be the full-time employees going forward. But during a transition, once the technology comes in, someone's got to train them, someone's got to install it. and And none of this is made in Canada technology. They're using LG, LG is a well-known brand name from South Korea, uh, technology in the factory. So none of this comes as a surprise, but it's unfortunate that the police chief, by accident, has kicked a hornet's nest here
0: uh and as you kick the hornet's nest uh, as you said 1600 the number i could see uh people being brought in to help set up i know friends that have done that and traveled to different places uh but they're few and and certainly not in the numbers of 1600 no. and then once they're finished they come home um, right. do we know anything different here like it, it assumes that people are coming and they're coming to stay and they're taking the jobs is this part of an immigration plan in some way do we think
3: so to date, to date, um, uh, when they signed the deal with Stellantis, they gave them an ability to apply for permits to have workers come from Korea. And to date, there's been one, one application so far. Again, if, if they're going to bring in 1,600 and it was going to happen in the summer of 2024, you'd think they would have done a lot more permits at this point. Now, clearly, the pro- province, the minister responsible in the province, the minister responsible federally, that's Minister Champagne, Uh, This has caught them both by surprise. They've been checking their uh, files, what have you. They have not found any great wave of workers coming here. I can imagine a number with a zero less, meaning maybe 160 South Korean workers coming for maybe a period of three, four, five months to help train and install and what have you. Uh, I I think this was a, a little bit of a comedy of errors, but it shows how sensitive we are. And again, this is the biggest uh support deal we've ever seen in Canadian history when all the subsidies add up over a 10 year period it will be 15 billion dollars and the only reason for the subsidies is to create canadian jobs and canadian uh businesses here so uh we we want to believe this is just an accidental thing not not some some hidden trojan horse here
0: uh, government caught by surprise, unaware, looking into it. Why hasn't Stellantis spoke up and clarified this, even from a PR perspective?
3: Yeah, so I guess I'd say two things at this point. Stellantis actually isn't uh, in that factory, uh, they would be in the United States, but they don't, they're not running the factory, it's still being constructed. And, and today, I imagine it's mostly poured cement slabs and metal siding and other framework going up there, so they don't really have someone on site to to handle this kind of a nightmare. And having said that, I imagine that in the United States, given that, let me think, today is Thanksgiving. Most of the people there are having a holiday and doing that. I think it's just come out of the blue and it's caught everybody flat-footed. Give us a weekend. It's a bit like the story yesterday with the Rainbow Bridge. Give everybody a, a few hours to catch their breath. And I think we're going to see this as just a tempest in a teapot.
0: When do you think we'll know more about this? Do you think they'll answer in next week sometime and, and yes. add some clarity?
3: Yeah, I think. I think. All right, Arbit- well. so let's let's start at the top. Uh, no, go the, ahead. The minister federally and the minister provincially—they want answers. They want them yesterday, uh, so they're going to push for it. Clearly, Stellantis is embarrassed. Now they thought they had the government over the barrel earlier this year when we signed the deal with Volkswagen. You might remember they threatened to stop the production yeah. of the factory. We gave them a little more sweetener, and they stayed in. Okay, now. We need a quid pro quo here. We responded to you. You need to hmm. respond to us. So I think by Monday at the latest, we'll have a much clearer perspective on this. But again, I I believe the the ambassador misspoke and probably the police chief misheard.
0: Marvin Ryder with us, professor de Groot School of Business, McMaster University, talking about the Stellantis deal and who is hiring who. And hopefully we'll find out by next week. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Following an incident of hate and violence outside the Toronto Islamic Center, a rabbi in the area reached out with a message of unity in the face of rising hate, divisiveness, and violence. Is this what it takes? Is this all it takes to have peace? Uh, I I think we can all learn something here. Let's bring in Rabbi Shaanan Scherer, teacher of Judaic studies, Tenenbaum Chat, and with us now. Rabbi, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
2: Hi. How are you
0: i'm doing well thanks so much tell us how you reached out tell us tell us what happened and, and what your thoughts and in how you reached out
2: okay so I, I wrote an email to the mosque and i start off by saying um as a zionist as a rabbi i want to uh, express my condemnation of this act of hatred um i i've lived in israel myself and and i have a strong zionist uh, jewish education And my Zionist Jewish values teach that there's no place for hatred. Um, And, you know, my time living in Israel, I had many good relations with Israeli Arabs who are Muslim. And uh, I feel like I was just extending my Zionist values by doing so. There's no place for hatred here in Canada. There's a conflict in the Middle East. And and my values I grew up with, uh, with the Jewish education, teaches we should not be, uh, you know, having any wrath of hatred towards anyone, nor violence. And,
0: and how was the message received?
2: Very positive leading, and, uh, you know, I hope to meet with uh, the Imams at some point. Uh, we have our political differences, um, but at the same time, there's a lot that Judaism and Islam have in common as religions, and I have done interfaith work. I have friends in Israel. work with their Arab neighbors and they do interfaith work and there's a lot of opportunity for building bridges of commonality a lot that we have in common one one small step at a time
0: how do we have those discussions without the terror how how do we separate um, uh, what is going on whether it's Hamas what have you how do we separate that from the discussion you're trying to have
2: Well, you're right. I mean, that eventually that has to be brought up. Um, I had a conversation recently with another Muslim school, and I said, you know, um, you you have to condemn Hamas because uh, I am concerned that, you know, uh, what Hamas did, they said it was in the name of Islam. And I feel it's very important for the Muslim community in Canada to either take ownership over Hamas or condemn it. They cannot be silent. They have to express their support or their condemnation. And I am hoping that if I do interfaith work with Muslims, as I've started, they will condemn Hamas. I have no interest in working with supporters of Hamas or bystanders. I can only work with peaceful Muslims, and I know that there are many out there in Canada, and I would love to start uh, doing work with them starting off on that basis, that we condemn hatred and acts of uh, terror, and, and that's what Hamas stands for. But I do know that there are peaceful Muslims who I'm very interested in doing interfaith work with
0: um what are your thoughts on the protests we've seen across the country and such and and instead of having the discussions that that you're speaking of, it seems more to be Palestinians versus Israelis uh, as opposed to freedom uh, and democracy versus authoritarianism authoritarianism and hatred or or what have you uh, terror um how how what are your thoughts on on protests that you're seeing? what's the message from you?
2: Well, I think that the nature of media is that there's always a loud minority that's making a lot of noise in the media and getting a lot of the attention. Um, you know, I, I I would like to build partnerships with uh, not the people who are shouting from Palestine to the uh, from the river to the sea because, in my mind, that's calling for the destruction of the only Jewish state of Israel. Um, but uh, I am, you know, I'd like to work. Uh, and build bridges with Muslim partners um, that we could talk about our shared religious values and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I feel like there are, is a lot of hate fests that are going on in Ontario. And uh, and it's because of that, that, you know, we I, I'd like to be part of a movement that is spreading not hate, but love and brotherhood. And uh, I believe that's what my Jewish values, my Zionist values teach. Uh, Once again, in Israel, there's a large Muslim population. Uh, There are Muslim victims from October 7th from Hamas as well. Um, So this issue is a humanitarian issue. And uh, I think that from what I've seen on the media, there is a lot of hatred. uh, And it is these kind of rallies that are going on in Canada is scary. Um, Canada has to take a stronger stance on hate speech. That is being said at these rallies. But uh, me, as one Canadian citizen, I would just like to build partnerships of peace, not hate, uh, one relationship at a time.
0: Are you optimistic that this discussion can be had uh, separate from Hamas, that... that that, that yeah. aspect of it can be can be uh, can be put aside and and have the discussion you want to have uh, without Hamas or those uh, influenced by yeah. uh, trying yeah. trying to sidetrack that.
2: Yeah, I have I've had many friends in Israel who are proud Muslim Israelis, and um, I can have a peaceful partnership with them based on Jewish and Muslim values. Um, And Palestinians as well, people who identify as Palestinians. So I I believe that there is a larger Muslim world out there that can condemn Hamas. Uh, My efforts would be for the, let's say, the local Canadian Toronto Hamilton community is for uh, Muslim leaders to openly, publicly condemn Hamas. I think that that will help fight against Islamophobia, because, as I said, you know, I'm sorry, just getting another call. But um, as I said, you know, uh, sorry one second. Sorry about that.
4: That's okay. Um,
2: As I said, you know, really the Muslim community should be uh, openly condemning Hamas. And either they're a supporter or they're uh, they're condemning it. And I'm hoping that in the interfaith work I do, uh, the Muslim community of Ontario. Will make a strong stance uh, against Hamas.
0: What do you, what do you message you have for Canadians who are watching this unfold?
2: Uh, my message is: is if you want to get a better understanding of the war that Israel is fighting, um, do a bit more research um, and read Israel's Declaration of Independence and how it calls for extending its arm of peace with Arab neighbors, and read the Hamas Charter which calls on the genocide of the Jewish people. It is the new generation of what the Nazis did to the Jewish people two generations ago. And this is uh, an evil that, unfortunately, the state of Israel has to fight. There is only one tiny Jewish state of Israel in this world, and I'm so proud to be a Zionist. Uh, The state of Israel stands for, it's the only democracy in the Middle East where um, all people can practice their religions openly. Jews, Christians, Muslims, um, Baha'i, uh, and many other religions are in Israel, and they practice their religions freely. Um, I'm very proud to be Zionist. And, um, and, you know, people have to understand that Israel is in the most difficult situation perhaps mm. any other country is right now. There are hostages right now, who are in Hamas dungeons, we have no idea uh, what about their whereabouts. And um, it's we're in pain. The Jewish community in Ontario, we're, we're in pain. Uh, I have friends who have lost uh, siblings, children who are kidnapped right now in Israel. We're in pain. We're dealing with a very, very difficult situation. And for those people in Canada who are saying, ceasefire now, um, come up with, I challenge them to come up with a better solution, mm. how uh, we can make sure as Israelis, to make sure that October, October 7th does not get repeated again. And unfortunately, Rabbi, um, yeah.
0: Rabbi, thank you so yeah. much for your time. Good luck. We'll keep in touch.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: This time we were talking, this time yesterday, we were talking about the uh explosion of a car at the Rainbow Bridge and, of course, the impending closure of all four of the area uh, bridges heading into uh, the Niagara region in upper uh, New York State and such. And then uh, around this time, around four o'clock, shortly thereafter, uh, the governor of New York uh, uh, announced that uh, it was an isolated incident, although uh, Incredibly tragic certainly uh not affiliated with terrorism they believed and then soon after opened up the other three borders uh the rainbow bridge still closed what does that do how does it uh play in both countries let's bring in Brian J karam journalist author White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN with us now Brian thanks for the time hope you're well
1: doing well doing well from this side of the border happy Thanksgiving i, I and it's a purely American thing, sh- but what the hell
0: i should have said that first how impolite of me brian happy thanksgiving to you i hope you're all having a great time doing doing well doing well all right (laughs) so how did how so far so good you know we're just trying to get through the week wishing we had a long weekend but we had ours already (laughs) what the heck although i know a lot of people who are bagging off and watching some football today so there you go (laughs) Uh,
1: uh
0: so how did this play in the u.s yesterday
1: Well, it depends on where you were and what you were watching. If you're watching Fox News, it was.
0: I I understand Fox had a little different spin on it.
1: (laughs) If you were watching Fox, it was the apocalypse terrorist coming. You had Ted Cruz and a couple other uh, politicians uh tweeting out how dangerous it was and this is all part of Biden's policy and and we're all going to hell because there's you know open borders and then there's the reality and it was apparently a and 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 in the beginning by the way it was reported that they were leaving Canada coming into the US but actually they were leaving the US it was a couple yeah. in a Bentley mm-hmm. leaving the US going into Canada they were wanting wanting to go to a kiss concert uh missed that went to a casino and on the way back uh, had this horrific accident that witnesses say sounded, looked like a uh, a a bird in fl- or a plane in flight. And mm-hmm. uh, if you've seen the video, it's pretty horrific. And so yeah. people hear a little bit more calm after, you know, the facts came out. The disturbing part was how quickly people jump to conclusions. And that's just shows you how daggone on edge everyone is these days uh and
0: uh, talk a little bit about that edge uh, obviously now this has been cleared up the border still closed as the investigation continues but uh, that has been ruled out we're waiting to see what happens talk about the four-day pause what's going on uh in the hamas israeli israel war and and u.s role in that in in and, and where this is going
1: well we got a uh, word from the president this morning uh, he's uh, you know in nantucket for thanksgiving and sent word that he's crossing his fingers that this, uh, that in four on Friday for four days, you know, there'll be a brief ceasefire fire to, uh, to release the hostages. He has his fingers crossed that a three-year-old American uh, girl is going to be, uh, released, uh, with the hostages as one of them that remains to be seen behind the scenes. You know, he has said he's siding with, um, Netanyahu, uh, you know, straight down the line, but he's also apparently according to other sources using that as as pressure and leverage to get Netanyahu to to make some decisions that are more humane for uh, the innocent uh, victims inside Gaza. So it remains to be seen. We know that they use uh, Qatar, gutter, gutter, if you want to pronounce it that way, uh, as, uh, as a go-between to talk with Hamas, to uh, get them to the bargaining table it's very dicey. It's very, very complicated. And it's a tough situation for any president to be in. Um, and it's a tough situation for the U.S. to be in, tough situation for the world. And that's why people are on edge. There has been uh, the FBI reported today that there is a, um, a more intense uh, notice and concern about um, terrorism in the United States and even Canada because of uh, what's going on um in the middle east so it's um that's the reason for the 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 people for people being on edge but it so far uh, hasn't played out you know the mo- the more horrific ideas have not played out <laughs> so all right, right know, we all we <laughs>
0: And hopefully, yeah, enjoy the weekend. Uh, we could go on and talk about this for a while, but uh, we're plumb out of time. But uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving, Brian, and uh, peace and all that. And hopefully, it's a calm one for you. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk to you at the other end. Thanks so much for the well, time.
1: As, as long as we get food today, we'll be fine. You have a great Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you soon.
0: <laughs> all right, take care, Brian J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, and political analyst for CNN, on uh, the view of things from down there. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
4: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Of course, the federal liberal fall economic uh, update uh, arrived the other day. Some happy, some sad, some indifferent to it all. Let's talk to Jugmeet Singh, federal leader of the NDP, and with us now, Jugmeet Singh. Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for asking. So your thoughts on the fall economic update, what you liked, what you didn't like?
5: I would say that the overall feeling was that of disappointment. And the reason was because the Liberals seem to acknowledge that the biggest challenge people are up against right now in terms of cost of living is finding a place they can afford, finding a place to rent, to own, just seems impossible. And given that acknowledgement, there's a lot of expectation that they would finally start to take some real steps to tackle it. But the only real mention of affordability, which is something that the Liberals were not mentioning until we forced them to include it, which are some good mentions around cooperative housing and not-for-profit housing, but all the affordable measures aren't going to take place until two years into the future. So it really meets. It doesn't meet the urgency of what people are going through. It's a lot of, a lot of that same delay and disappointment. That people have already been feeling towards the liberals has, has been continued by this false economic statement. Uh,
0: anything you can do to put more pressure on that? Many say you hold the cards here.
5: Well, we we for a long time we were pointing out the fact that the liberals' plan to build homes did not include affordability. It was about building more luxury apartments or luxury condos. And of course, we need to have private development, but having more luxury condos based on the people I've been speaking to in Toronto is not going to make life more affordable. A lot of the Young people I spoke to say that we're struggling with the rent, and if you build 20 more luxury condo towers, I can't afford any of that. I can't afford to buy it or to rent it. That's not going to make my life better. Is this about
0: affordable? Is this about affordable housing, Jugmeat, or is this about, uh, subsidized housing? Because, you know, I've used the example before. You could build a modest home with modest furnishings. Uh, and if you build 10 of them, but there's a thousand people lining up to, to purchase them, they don't stay affordable for very long. So until the supply, uh, is, has caught up to the demand, I don't see how the word affordable could even be used. So is this mean that subsidized through government for certain segments of the population? Is it subsidized housing?
5: Well, the, actually, we've spoken with a lot of economic uh, experts, economists, who said that it's not just a supply issue because it's, it's not actually going to bring down. If we built a million, maybe build 20 million uh, high cost luxury condos, the, the cost that it takes to build those, the cost that it takes for the, bu- the developer who build those to recover that cost is not going to make the rent or to purchase them affordable. You can't just build a whole bunch of luxury apartments and think that somehow that's going to bring down the, the, the cost. Especially when we've got something like housing which is a need, you can't solve that purely with a supply approach. Because supply demand works when you can control the demand. If I make it hard to buy shoes and sure, people will put off buying shoes for a year. You can't put off buying a home if you need a place to live. You can't put off paying your rent. So the supply, the strict application of supply demand doesn't work on something that is a necessity. And that's why we've been saying there has to be built-in affordability. And that's why some of the solution has to include Things like cooperatives, where the owners of the or the residents of a cooperative set the price. Or a not-for-profit building, where the goal of that building is to provide homes that are affordable. They're not trying to make a profit. They're not trying to recover investments they put in for shareholders. And that's why the very nature of the type of housing that we build has to be affordable. Of course, we need private development. And of course, there is a massive demand for homes that need to be met. But it can't just be a supply-only approach to a problem which is far bigger than that.
0: Uh, what describes a luxury condo? Because, you know, I've I known people living in 650, 800-square-foot uh, 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 condos that they've rented out or what have you, and there's nothing luxurious about it.
5: You know, it's not the, 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 uh, the fittings of the place, it's the cost. And when we talk to people, the average cost of, of renting a place in Toronto of one-bedroom has well exceeded $2,000 a month to get a two bedroom that can be anywhere reasonable for a family as well into the, the upper $3,000. we are talking things that are just out of reach. That that cost is a cost that's not affordable. It's a luxury cost. And it's not meeting the needs of where people are at. If you look at how much people are earning, the earnings and wages of everyday folks, even with decent jobs, aren't enough for them to be able to buy a place in Toronto let alone for a lot of people to even rent a place that meets their needs. I met this uh, couple, this family, and, and he said, I, I got a two-bedroom apartment. I got two daughters, me and my wife, and all I want is for my girls to have a room of their own, and I can't find a place that I can afford where I can get a room for each of my girls. And that is, that is the problem they're up against. It, the cost of the prices for rent and for, for homes are far in excess of what people are earning, and that is a problem.
0: Uh, it seems that we, many have said with the economic update, there wasn't a lot of money there. Um, and many are saying that uh, perhaps the Liberals are realizing they've got to use some restraint here. Are you concerned about Pharmacare and that there won't be enough money by the time this is all over for that?
5: Well, for Pharmacare, we've been very clear that we want the framework. So we're not asking for any spend this year or even next year, even the following year. We're asking for the plan and the foundation to set up a national Pharmacare. We also know the experts have said this would be a cost savings ultimately because we all know it would save a lot of money for someone to be able to afford their insulin rather than getting kidney failure because of uh, extreme cases of diabetes and ending up on dialysis. That costs a lot more. Similar for heart medication. If you can afford to take your heart medication, it's a uh, it's a a lot more savings than with someone who ends up having to get a heart surgery. So, of course, there's savings in that sense. There's savings in the bulk purchasing. But what we're asking for is a foundation of laying the foundation for universal care. It's not a cost piece until we start negotiating with provinces, and that's not for years down the road. But what we do, what we are concerned about is that the Liberals taking this kind of conservative approach that you can't spend or invest in things like housing when we know investing in housing based on economists' own findings would be an inflation-fighting tool. Right now, one of the major drivers of inflation or one of the major factors of inflation Is a high cost of mortgage or the high cost of rent. The cost of housing has gone up by a lot. So building more affordable homes would actually fight Hmm. inflation. Any any
0: thought to pull on the plug on this?
5: Uh, Our focus is to try to get results for Canadians, and we're going to keep on using the power we have to get those results. We're going to keep on fighting and and using that pressure that we have, and we've been delivering. Dental care, that's going to be out the door for seniors. The rollout's going to start by the end of this year, and that's going to mean millions of seniors are going to get free dental care it's going to be expanded to kids, people living with disabilities, and then beyond. This is a program that we've got to get delivered because I've seen the benefits. I met with a mom, Brianna, in Edmonton, whose five kids, all under 12, got to see the dentist for the first time in their lives because of what this uh, of this program we really fought for. So we want to get that done, and we're going to keep on fighting as long as we can.
0: Jagmeet Singh with us, leader of the federal NDP. Thank you so much, as always. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, sir. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A jury has declared a former RCMP intelligence officer guilty of disclosing secrets to targets of police interest in violation of the Security of Information Act. Uh, we've talked about this before. What does it mean moving forward? Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. This
6: is two days in a row people are going to start talking about us, you know.
0: I know. and you know what? First, let's go back before we start to this. Cause I, you know, I still wanted to talk to you about the two Michaels and what the heck's going on there. But anyway, I digress. Uh, anything to be learned from what uh, we went through yesterday? Uh, obviously, uh, not a terrorist situation, but still just a, a tragic accident. Any or whatever. We don't know yet. Um, uh, anything to be learned from incidents like this? Like, for example, how a car gets up to that rate of a speed coming up to a, uh, you know, to a
6: checkpoint at a border? Well, yeah, I mean, if you saw the videos, you'd swear it was a Hollywood movie you were seeing with that car going through. I couldn't believe it. Um, Again, it wasn't a terrorist event, to the best of our knowledge, but it does show that border areas are very sensitive. In your previous podcast, we talked about the importance of the border to Canada, United States. So, not a surprise that people were nervous about what happened because um, you know we're used to unfortunately terrorism happening. It, It could have been a terrorism attack, and it wasn't. The lesson for me, Scott, is I, I know we want answers as soon as possible. We're we in an era of what I call instant analysis. But sometimes we simply have to wait for law enforcement agencies to do their investigations, gather information and decide what actually happened rather than jump, jump into conclusions, I suppose. All right,
0: let's move on and talk about this RCMP officer. We talked about this a while ago. How serious a, of this is a charge? I heard one comment, uh, one commentator say uh, that this proves that we can we can uh, charge and, and get a conviction in cases like this. What are your thoughts?
6: Yes and no. So the Security of Information Act, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time this was tried, no pun intended, in Canada. To uh, to see if it works, I, I I knew people in my former job that disclosed information they couldn't have and nothing happened to them. So it's a good news story that the legislation can actually work and we can provide a conviction. Um, it's embarrassing. It, it's damaging to Canada. We're not the only first party uh, in our alliances to have right. had this happen. Edward Snowden, I'm sure, comes to mind south of the border, hmm. but. I'll tell my hat to the RCMP. Uh, they investigated one of their own. They collected the uh, evidence to the right level. It went to trial that you know he was found guilty. So all in all, it shows we can do these things. The unfortunate downside is that they still do happen. And we have to be eternally vigilant within CSIS and the RCMP and CSC, CSE, et cetera, to make sure employees aren't doing what they shouldn't be doing.
0: Uh, was this person made an example of, or will that be the the message in the end?
6: Good question. Because it's the first time this legislation has, has come to trial, to the best of my knowledge, we're we're, we're a new territory here. Like, I understand the Crown is asking for 20 years in this case. That's a very serious sentence in Canadian law. And whether or not he actually does 20 years is a whole other issue. But I think it sends the message that if you deal with very sensitive information outside of protocols share it with individuals who don't have either a need to know, which is the term we use, or the requisite security clearance, uh, and they find out you're, you're going to do some serious time behind bars. And I think that's the message you want to send to Canadians, actually. Will this change government policy in any way? Does that need to happen? I don't know. The policy certainly seemed to work. I mean, you know, you and I, Scott, have talked on how many occasions. I worked with very sensitive material for more than 30 years. I know what I can and cannot say. I haven't been arrested yet, which is a good thing, I suppose. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that those who are entrusted with this information understand uh, how to handle it, um, what to do with it. So I I think the protocols work. This being Canada, who knows, there'll be a royal inquiry or something, something or other. But I do think the rules that are in place work, and they were shown to work in the orders trial.
0: All right. Let's uh, see if we can squeak another one in here. Phil, uh, you and I talked about the two Michaels many times. And even when their release was granted, uh, I remember saying to you, are you surprised we haven't heard more or in the time that passed that we had heard more. Now we're hearing uh, one suing the government because of the other. What are your thoughts on this? Where's this going?
6: Yeah, I know, we're, I know we're, we're we're sort of tight for time here, Scott. Uh, basic bottom line is if these allegations are true, and that's a huge if, and we certainly saw yesterday allegations that pro- proved not to be true in the Rainbow Bridge incident, the program that one of the Michaels is alleged to have been participating in is called the GSRP, the Global Security Reporting Program. It's a post-9-11 phenomenon out of the foreign ministry. And at the time when I was at CSIS, uh, a lot of us were very skeptical that the program was well-planned, well-thought-out. Uh, doing things that we were already doing so hard to say um again a lawsuit interesting although lawsuits seem to be a hobby here in canada as well i think that you know it's funny you mentioned this we we wouldn't talk about this story again yet the other shoes seems to have dropped so an awful lot more information has to come out and i've got a sneaking suspicion scott we're going to be talking about this down the road at some point
0: uh will this be between each individual will it involve china i know they've already spoken out and said there's hypocrisy here uh, your thoughts on how that will be viewed or this whole situation will be viewed
6: Well, you know whether or not uh, the allegations are true, the the, the fact remains is that China incarcerated two Canadians in revenge for for our detain uh, detention of Meng Wanzhou, who was, of course, the the, one of the the CFO of Huawei. China can say whatever it wants. I wouldn't trust China as far as I can throw them. They're not our ally. Uh, They've done things here in Canada with police stations affecting our elections. They've lied to us repeatedly. Uh, Can China-Canada relations get any worse than they are right now? I, I don't know. But it certainly doesn't make. Uh, I think the, the current government want to make relations with China any better. Uh, many uh,
0: wondered what the situation or the relationship was like between the two Michaels. Does this kind of solidify that? Uh, how, do do they talk? Are they? Um, uh, what is their relationship? Any any knowledge of that?
6: Yeah, I I, I never heard that they. Uh, I mean, to me, it was a coincidence that they were both called Michael. They were both picked up by the Chinese around the same time. Again, these allegations, if true, suggest there was some kind of relationship between them and that there may have been some murky things that have been done. But I think it's a little bit too early at this point to draw any conclusions on exactly uh, what happened. Of course, you know, one person has made allegations against the other. But as I said, a lot more information has to come out. But it certainly puts a different spin on things that I wouldn't have predicted, you know, three years ago when they were first picked up.
0: Uh, is that why you think it's been so long uh, since we've heard anything from them after the release? Uh, because again, we all wondered, we all thought we'd hear some sort of story, and other than
6: this, we've heard very little. Yeah, that's that's another great question, and it is kind of curious that you would think that you know if this was truly the case that you know, and, and one person felt the other was responsible to some extent for his incarceration. He would have come out with a story as soon as he, you know, basically got off the plane in Toronto uh, from China after his detention. Why it took so long is, uh, yeah, that's um, that's a bit of an uh, enigma to me. Uh, it suggests that maybe a lot of thinking had to go into this, or maybe he wasn't ready given the nature of the detention he was under while he was in China. But again, I, I think that uh, there's an awful lot more we have to learn, and it, but it put it definitely puts a different spin on things, and uh, it'll be interesting going forward for sure.
0: Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst talking about all things security. Phil, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Please don't call me tomorrow, Scott. I'll I'll try to give you a day off. Enjoy the U.S. Thanksgiving.
1: Thank you, sir. (laughs)
0: All right, uh, we've been talking about this, uh, the pause, or four-day ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, four-day pause between uh, Hamas and Israel is going to start on Friday. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
7: I am, Scott. Hope you are, too.
0: So far, uh, Jack, are you optimistic that this four-day pause will last four days? And um, w- what do you think the other end will look like?
7: Well, at this point, it's uh, it's 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 a little risky to speculate because it's already been delayed by one day, which could indicate uh, second thoughts on one side or the other, and there are ample reasons for that.
0: Uh, two elements to this, one being the the pause, the other being the actual release of the hostages, or are they both being tied together?
7: I think they are, and that is uh, somewhat problematic because uh, it, uh, it gives Hamas an opportunity to simply promise to release hostages in dribs and drabs whenever they feel the need for... Uh, a pause in hostilities this would allow them to essentially dictate the pace at which hostilities commence and uh, and stop.
0: uh won't each other be able to monitor exactly what each other is doing during that four-day pause
7: well uh yeah and uh israel already has some indications of where its intelligence is active and where it's not Israel has not been able to locate and capture most of Hamas's leaders. And given a pause, they could uh, they could move to the uh, the south of Gaza, where it would be harder to locate them. And uh, at the moment, they could be anywhere in the rather vast network of tunnels underlying Gaza. So Is that it's, the same it's, with... It's, I'm, I, I'm not privy to Israeli intelligence, so I don't know exactly how much they do know. But uh, I do know that there are gaps.
4: Do you think they
0: would know where the hostages are, or at least an area of there?
7: Uh, they might. They might not. I mean, r- r- keep in mind, this is being uh, brokered by uh, Qatar in conjunction with the United States. How much Israel actually knows is uh, is unclear.
0: 54-150. Uh, why the difference?
7: Uh, because the... Uh, the because Hamas is uh, very bloody-minded in these things, and, uh, and uh, the, there is a certain differential in pressure. The Israeli government is under considerable pressure, both domestically and internationally, to secure the release of uh, hostages, including from the United States, for those hostages who are dual Israeli-American nationals. And as a result, uh, the uh, the the other side is simply in a stronger negotiating position.
0: So, what does that say uh, about where we are? What does that say about what uh, this happening now?
7: Well, it could all come unstuck uh, if uh, if the if the Israeli government has uh, has sufficiently profound second thoughts. There have been reports of some fairly agitated discussions among the war cabinet.
0: Uh, we've heard reports that Netanyahu ha- has said that uh, after this pause, the war will continue, that the bombing will continue. Does that help?
7: It's tough to resume after a pause, because the international pressure is going to only mount. <coughs> and if Israel it directs its operations toward South Gaza... <coughs> The humanitarian situation will only worsen and the international pressure will only intensify.
0: So could this pause mean the sign of the, that we're close to the end or that at least there will be some movement in some way and and, and less of what we've been seeing recently?
7: <laughs> it might, but I wouldn't count on it. the uh, The Israeli government in the crunch will probably resume hostilities but it will be harder for it to do so in the face of mounting pressure.
0: And are we any further ahead on what happens after the dust settles and and what this is supposed to look like in the future from either side?
7: No, we're not. That's still uh, very murky. Uh,
0: what do you think is going to happen after four days?
7: After four days, my hunch is... Uh, Israel will be under intense international pressure to, uh, to extend the pause, but that it will, in the crunch, decline to do so.
0: What about pressure for Palestinians to separate themselves from Hamas, from either side?
7: <clears throat> well, uh, there's that pressure, but uh, so far, uh, Hamas is quite effectively using the Palestinian population in Gaza as human shields. That's not going to change.
0: So is any of that, would any of that uh, intelligence knowledge be used to help form an opinion on the future of of Palestine or the Palestinian people? What's a win for them?
7: Well, a win for them is the uh, ouster of Hamas and its replacement by a somewhat more tolerant governing authority. But that's not going to happen until Hamas is broken militarily.
0: Which means it's not going to
7: happen until the war is fought through to a successful conclusion.
0: Is that possible?
7: Uh, The the international pressure makes it difficult, but it is technically doable.
0: (laughs) Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
7: You do, Scott. Take care.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the
1: heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
0: A fiscal update the other day from the government, uh, basically designed to give you an update of where everybody is on the budget and and make any tweaks and and changes that need to be. And uh, one of those tweaks was... Uh, a, a notice that if communities decide to do this, that, um, Uh, They could actually end up uh, uh, losing, people who are involved in Airbnbs, losing write-off situations that they have on rental properties. Uh, There's also been issues in the past of foreign ownership and such. Interesting article in the National Post from Aaron Woodrick and John Hartley, who uh, is joining us now. Trudeau launches assault on property rights to answer the housing shortages. Liberals crack down on short-term rental owners and fiscal update while ignoring the need for a mass-scale scale construction of private builds. And it was interesting uh, because something similar to this, uh, I, I knew somebody who was buying a property in Italy and they were having a problem purchasing it because the Italian government had cut Canadians off from doing so, uh, tit for tat, because... I guess Canadians or Italians uh, or any other peer, uh, foreign ownership is not allowed in Canada now. This ends up for like 2% of the actual uh, issue. And at the end of the day, this is a self-inflicted wound created by simply not building enough homes over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Because building is a bad word because it leaves a huge env- environmental footprint and will kill the planet. So is this just smoke and mirrors? Let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, director of the McDonnell-Laurie Institute's Domestic Policy Program and here now aaron thanks for the time hope you're well yeah thanks for having me scott so what are your thoughts on this fiscal update and of course uh now (laughs) to the government's amazement affordability and housing are the major issues on everybody's mind what are your thoughts on how they're they're trying to solve the issue
8: Well, they're trying to make up for lost time, right? I don't think it's a surprise to anyone and probably this government would acknowledge themselves that they were asleep at the switch on housing. Um, It was not something they really put a lot of thought into or cared much about when they came into office. Uh, Obviously, the opposition leader kind of uh, sort of read the public mood, sort of talking about it. Now they realize uh, the government realizes they've got a big problem on their hands. And so they're trying to make up for lost time now. The problem scott is a problem that's been been festering for about 20 years or more is hard to fix really quickly it's certainly hard to fix before the next election in two years so that's the reason i think you see a lot of these measures which i would say are a lot more smoke than fire um look there's nothing there's there's no nothing bad about building some more social housing uh, or the government directly being involved with this stuff but these this is all just this is small ball i mean we need some estimates say we need between three to five million new homes in Canada over the next decade. And and the, the numbers that they're talking about this budget, I mean, they're, they're bragging about 21,000 new units, you know, when we need, Three to five million, and similarly with this crackdown on Airbnb, which is the thing that we are really built this op-ed around, is that you know it's almost like because the government couldn't get houses built because, uh, and it's not just the federal government's uh, fault. I want to say it's also municipalities and the provinces. Um, you know, they they want to start dictating Canadians what they can do with their own property. So if you are you know uh, you worked hard, you finally managed to buy a house. You sort of renovate the basement, and you want to rent it out once in a while to tourists to make a little money to help pay your mortgage. Now the government's coming along saying, "You know what? We're going to make that less lucrative for you." We won't, you know. They're trying to basically trying to force people to turn those units into full time, long term rentals. And the problem with that, Scott, is. A lot of people are not up for being full-time landlords. There's a lot more compliance, legal issues. Um, you know it, it, people will know it's really hard to evict anyone if you have a delinquent tenant. So mm. a lot of people aren't interested in long term tenancy, and the federal government is really just trying to punish people uh, trying to to make ends meet by maybe you know renting out part of their property.
0: I'll play devil's advocate here, Aaron. What about every little bit helps? Those that may have a dozen properties.
8: Mm-hmm. Well, look, uh, it really comes down to the property right issue for me. I don't know how you get at those people who own a dozen properties without also hurting the people who are just, you know, like I said, like a basement unit in their own home. Um, and there's mm. probably good reasons why a lot of these people choose Airbnb over long term rentals. And, you know, if the government wants to make it more attractive to be a landlord, by all means, they can do that. I think that would do a lot more than trying to punish people who are using their units as Airbnbs.
0: What are some of your suggestions, Aaron? You talk about uh, incentives and such. I mean, how can this be used to help?
8: Yeah, look, I, I think the government has a tendency to see a problem and want to just throw taxpayer money at it. Um, and the scale mm. here, is, that's just not going to work. We just don't have enough. Even if we use the entire federal budget on housing, it's not going to move the needle. And more importantly, Scott, we don't need to use public money on this. There are plenty of private builders that would love to build more. It's just that municipal zoning laws in most cases get in the way. So I I think the federal government, they're on the right track where they've set up a fund to reward municipalities that get more houses built. That's good. But I think they need to go further. I think they need to just not use carrots. They need to use sticks. They need to start uh, holding back money from municipalities that don't meet certain targets because that, you know, it's a matter of degree. Uh, You know, municipalities would like extra money and if they can hit the target, great, they'll take it. But boy, if you start telling them, guess what? You're going to miss out on all this funding for things like transit unless you build more housing. I think you're going to get their attention pretty quickly.
0: Uh, many politicians using the term affordable housing, which is I'm not sure how you can use that until the supply meets up to the demand, it is, do they really mean subsidized housing?
8: Yeah, look, and that's always going to be a subset of the problem. But so for the people who say to me, well, you know, it's it's not just about su- supply. It largely is about supply. I mean, if you if you massively yeah. increase the supply of housing. Um, you are still going to have some people that can't afford housing at market rates, but it's going to be a lot fewer people. And so you don't need to spend as much in social housing if the average cost of housing comes down. So I think the, the focus on that is misplaced. If you build 5 million new homes, if we can manage to pull that off, I guarantee you the price of housing is going to be down to the point where you know a lot of people are not going to be in a position where they need subsidized housing because they can afford it at market rates.
0: Aaron Woodrick with us, director of the McDonald laurie Institute's domestic policy program, Uh, Trudeau launching assault on property rights to answer the housing shortage. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. Over and above what is going on uh, in the world, a major meeting between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the leaders of the European Union begins uh, today in Newfoundland and Labrador's capital cities. Uh, And obviously the war unfolding uh, in Gaza between Israel and Hamas is going to be top of mind. But what else? And... And how does Canada move forward with all of this, considering where we are on the world stage? Arl Brown is with us, professor, international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Your thoughts on this meeting uh, with the EU? Uh, what they hope to accomplish, and the Prime Minister's role
4: here? This is a uh, a meeting with a very ambitious list. Where there is a good deal in common, where in in some cases consensus can be reached, but there are also going to be contentious issues. So there's a vast range from speaking about democratic values, about the international uh, uh, order, how to move to a rule based order, to the economy, to climate, whether it is climate change, biodiversity, pollution, uh, to energy, the use of hydrogen, and of course, key uh, international issues, such as the Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine, and the conflict uh, following the horrific attack by Hamas uh, and uh, the Massachusetts Committed on October seventh, and how that conflict uh, is unfolding. So there's a great deal to discuss, and on some of these, uh, I think there is likely to be some progress. But elsewhere, it will be very difficult to find solutions. Uh, Canada's position
0: here, or even as host, uh, taking a bit of beating on the world stage of late, um, w- w- how will that translate to to what goes on and what is accomplished this in these two days?
4: I think Canada's uh, international image has suffered some blows. We got into a dispute with India uh, where we did not come out well, and it remains unresolved. Our relations with China are at uh, a low point. I think uh, that uh, even though we have spoken uh, very strongly about supporting Ukraine, we have not delivered as much as the Ukrainian had expected. And then the original very powerful support that that the government appeared to give to Israel uh, and the recognition that this was a just war, that seems to have eroded. And there may be some significant differences, let's say, between the approach that Canada has compared to that of Germany, of uh, Italy, and also of the EU, of course, uh, uh, the UK. Will Canada
0: have to clarify its position on that issue here?
4: I, I think uh, uh, if you're referring to the situation in Gaza, I think there is a need for clarification, not just in uh, the case of Canada, but also in the case of Mr. Macron, who walked back some of his comments, because it is very understandable that it is a a noble instinct to want to save lives. Any life lost is a tragedy in conflict, but this is what we have to look at the intent. And when Mr. Trudeau said, well, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself, but not basically causes casualties which would be totally at variance with every other such conflict. We look at Mosul, it took nine months to clean out ISIS. And uh, the American tech defense, Lloyd Austin said that uh, he fought ISIS and Hamas is worse than ISIS. And there appeared to be a consensus that Hamas has to be removed. So when there is this kind of suggestion that you can defend yourself, but basically do it with both hands tied behind your back or that there is some kind of magical solution, If Mm. Mr. Trudeau has a magical solution, then he should share both with the international community and with the Canadian people.
0: What happens after the Hamas-Israeli conflict? Will there be any chatter of what comes out the other end of this?
4: There is talk that what uh, the uh, Europeans and Canada will uh, probably agree on would be the need for a two-state solution. And again, this is not something new. We've been talking about this for a very long time, and the question is how to achieve this. to have two states where both states uh, are able to pursue their interests without fear of being invaded or having atrocities committed against them. And let's not forget that between 1948 and 1967, there were no Israeli troops whatsoever, not a single one, in Gaza, not a single one in the West Bank, not a single one in uh, Eastern Jerusalem, and there easily could have been a state, but the Arabs had rejected that. Then every offer that was made, Camp David and elsewhere, uh, was rejected. So uh, the desire to have a two-state solution is something that many people aspire to, but declaratory statements alone are not enough.
0: How do Palestinians separate themselves with Hamas and the reputation that it brings with it?
4: This is the great danger, uh, and this is what we need to recognize. And there was that kind of moral clarity at the beginning when uh, the five main democracies uh, made the statement where basically they said Hamas has to go and that Hamas does not represent the interests of the Palestinian people. So there has to be that kind of separation. Uh, and that uh, uh, there is a recognition that Hamas is not just uh, a terrible, terrible tragedy for Israel, but it is also a disaster for the Palestinian people. And consequently, any kind of settlement that would in some form allow Hamas to stay would be catastrophic for everyone involved. And this is where we have to be very careful about having pauses where obviously we'd like to see These innocent hostages suffered so terribly, released. uh, It's an illegal act in any uh, interpretation of international law. But at the same time, we have to look at the big picture, exactly to what you were speaking about, is how do the Palestinian people move on with their lives, freed from Hamas, which the democratic states had declared that Hamas had brought nothing but bloodshed and terror to the Palestinian people, not just to the Israelis but to the Palestinian people.
0: Why are we positioning this as Palestinians versus Israelis when really it's democracy and freedom versus terror and non-democracy, authoritarianism, what have you? Isn't that really not the discussion here?
4: It's it's an excellent question. And and, uh, uh, it's very puzzling why there's not that kind of recognition because Hamas has done uh, uh, terrible damage to the Palestinian people. Hezbollah has done terrible uh, uh, pain and and damage to the people of Lebanon. The Houthis uh, uh, have caused havoc in in Yemen. And there's Iran, the center of uh, uh, terror in the world, which uh, has used these organizations as proxies. So logic would tell us that we would need to understand that this fight against terror is not some isolated incident, but it is something that affects all of us. Uh, and consequently, it is essential to keep that in mind. But when we see Hamas using human shields and we see the loss of life uh, and uh, children dying, then it is a natural instinct for us to say that we would just like this to stop. Uh, But that plays into the hands of Hamas because they don't care about about their own people. When they were asked, Mm -hmm. why do you not uh, make sure that... uh, do people have food and and fuel? And they said, well, that's not our job. Somebody else is to take care of the education and the feeding and the medical care of the population while they built uh, tunnels and rockets and and, uh, trained uh, terrorists uh, how to uh, create havoc uh, uh, both within Gaza, but especially in Israel. So um, the Hamas propaganda has been effective. This is what terrorists have been very good at because they cynically use their own populations uh, and they don't care about uh, mm. their own people. They haven't built any shelters to protect the people of Gaza. They built shelters, tunnels to protect the rockets they're firing.
0: Arl Brown with us, professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, talking about world events. As always, Arl, we can talk forever. Thanks for your time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley joining us after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. Look at you. You just There's not enough division in the world. There's not enough hell going on. There's not enough just what makes you want to put your head in the sand. You want to talk about Christmas bias tonight. Good oh, for you. Oh, my goodness. Colonial bias. Yeah,
9: so so a Black Locks reporter, which covers Ottawa and other things, uh, they found this report from the Cana- from a Canadian human. <laughs> Human Rights Commission report that says observance of Jesus' birth is an obvious example of religious bias rooted in colonialism.
0: No one is free until we are all free. What about those that that want to practice? Are they not like? Well, no. Uh, it, if you, if you do this, then they're not
9: free, are they? They're not free. <laughs> I just, you know, Scott, it, like the funny thing to me about this is what, what percent and whether this is a good thing, some people will say it's a good thing. Some people will say it's a bad thing. What percent of people are truly engaged at Christmas time now, engaging in the religious aspect of Christmas? It's, it's the tree and it's the Christmas yeah. presents and it's dinner and everything. And, and like, this is... To me, this is not living in some Middle Eastern country where the Taliban is enforcing, uh, you know, a, a rule on religious grounds. It's, we have a tradition here that people follow. I, I, every once in a while we hear this story about the war on Christmas and I generally scoff at it because I kind of think, you know, like, come on. It, it, here's an example where this is this, the Canadian Human Rights Commission. This is a, an official body of our government. That is saying this stuff. It's just, it's lunacy. It's and I don't, I don't for a second expect that, well, who knows, but that the federal government will do anything about this. You wouldn't expect they'll do anything. They'll just sort of look at this report and go, okay, another bunch of loons on the exceeding left who have nothing else to do, but write ludicrous reports, but nonetheless, it just, it, it, it does drive home a statement, I think about
0: something. And I'm not, I'm not even sure what that something is, but it says something about something. Do you get the feeling that people are extremely tired of the extremes whether oh, it's yes. on the left or the right oh, that, yes. that, you know like as people are trying to feed their family as people are trying to keep a roof over their head people are trying to you know look for a house whatever have families uh, put groceries on the table that you know the, this 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 spoiled woke stuff that we've been in, in you know in, in engaging in for the last 20 years has finally come home to roost and it's like what are you going to do from me now? What are you going Uh, to build for me now? I couldn't agree more. You know, I mean, people have had enough of of the extreme on the left or the right. I could not agree with you more. And and I honestly think that, that again, and people are talking about this election and how one leader is better than the other leader. It's like, you know what? Neither. You name me a time when any of us have voted for a leader because we absolutely love them and they're the greatest person and they're going to change the planet. No, you you vote for someone to get rid of the other guy in many scenarios. Always now. Always
9: now. That's the case. So,
0: yeah. So, uh, you know, here's hope that politicians and it started with trump and 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 you know what our prime minister is no different he's just coming from the extreme left um i i think people have had enough of this i mean you know he's divided as on gender he's divided as on vaccination he's divided on climate change when we support all of this we just don't feel the same way about it that he does. Let me give and, you, and, and then yeah. you know, Chinese Communist Party, India. Now the Israeli Hamas war and and Palestinians. He divides everybody, and then he stands there and scolds us all for fighting. Let me give it's you like an example. People have Scott. had enough of this guy.
9: Last year, and I wrote about this, and I just had to pull it up the uh, the story up here to make sure I get the name right because I want to give credit to uh, to the gentleman. Um, uh, last year at uh, at the uh, Temple Anshe Shalom in Hamilton. Rabbi Jordan Cohen hosted, he allowed, hosted a Christmas concert at the synagogue. And you're saying, well, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, Jewish people don't celebrate Christmas. And That's he, it for us. Know, Thanks he, for listening. As time, always, we it was, leave to you, it answer. to you, like, the perfect and the last if someone word. comes up to me and even if they don't recognize somehow that I'm Jewish, I don't know how you wouldn't, but if they don't recognize that I'm Jewish and they say, oh, uh, Merry Christmas. Why would I be offended by someone offering me a pleasant greeting of good tidings and of happiness? What would, any more Scott than if someone came up to you and said, happy Hanukkah, and you say, well, I'm not Jewish. Could you possibly be offended if someone said something (laughs) to you that was, that was passing on a good greeting. And I look at this stuff and Christmas is just one example, it goes to all the stuff you're saying, we go looking for things to fight about. And then the other thing about this is, again, I look at Rabbi Cohen here, who is a perfect example of this. And I commend him endlessly for this. We go looking for preemptive offense. Uh, He's not offended. He's Jewish. He's not offended about Christmas. There are people who are talking in this story about the Blacklock reporter, uh, article who are not Christian who are of other religions saying, what's the problem here? Why, why yeah. is this a problem? And yet we have people who are, well, they're going to be offended. Well, actually <laughs> they're not offended. So why yeah. are we worried about whether we're going to offend someone who's not offended, there are things, Scott, there are things a hundred percent that are going to offend people and, and, and I'm not suggesting otherwise, I'm not suggesting that's not the case at all, but geez Louise, in this country, we have enough things that are problems or issues we need to work on. Do we really need to go digging around yep. for more things just to find more division? I don't think so. We
0: have way more in common than we do differences. We uh, Scott Wheaton. Radley. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your spectator. Scott, great show. Good luck with it. Thank you. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Coming from Mr. Lowe on the the Hammerhead trivia question. Uh, The Woodward Pumping Station was built to bring fresh water from Lake Ontario through a sand filter and pump to a reservoir on Hamilton Mountain. It then flowed by gravity to the city, a truly ambitious city project. We need more. Mr. Lowe, keep right except to pass.